Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. My name is Nick Schultz. You can catch me on Schultzy Time. You can find us on For the Neglected. Like always, I'm with my producer, Quinn. What's going on, man? What up, what up? And you were our guest last week. I was. And we got some good response from you, man. Appreciate you sharing your life last week. Yeah, for sure. It was really impactful. Thank you for producing. Thank you, City Church, for hosting. And we got a special guest today. Always special. That would be bad if I didn't say it was special, but we got a special <laughs> guest today. My friend, Mr. Matt Roji. How are you doing, sir? Great, Nick. How are you? I'm all right, man. Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. Appreciate you being here. Glad to be here. All right. Well, let's get get started here. We know each other from just regular life, church, yep. ministry opportunities. Also, um, your wife, Stacy went to Rwanda on the team that I co-led That's this right. past summer. Yep. So I think that was her second time there, right? That was her second, yeah. Yeah, it was my sixth. I normally went with adults, but this year was my first time with students, and she <laughs> helped kind of wrangle and co-lead with uh, the students there, and she's awesome, as you know, I'm sure. I agree. And yeah. you, you are as well. <laughs> But, uh, and yesterday, Quinn was also Matt's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, man. Yep. Which his wife and him share the same birthday too, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Me and my mom share the same birthday. So ah, cool. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Uh, funny story really quick yeah. before we, um, after my grandma passed away, uh, my grandpa was living with us and I was, I don't remember how young I was, probably 13, 14, something like that. And it was me and my mom's birthday mm -hmm. and I come into the kitchen in the morning and mom has breakfast and stuff and he opens up his wallet and he's like stacy happy birthday you know and he gives her a hundred dollar bill and she's like uh you know it's quinn's birthday too and he's like oh give him 50 of it <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. at least you got something that's yeah. right yeah so i get it i get it <laughs> good deal all right matt well we appreciate you being here and uh we always start off with just getting a little bit of background of, of your life where you're from what your family dynamic was like just culturally neighborhood what was it like for you growing up and what kind of family were you in and where'd you come from, sir? All right. Well, I uh, grew up in California, up in the Bay Area. Uh, initially, lived in Oakland, um, East Oakland, as a matter of fact, which is uh, we were definitely the minority at that point. Um, but, uh, and that was just, you know, more due to, I think, income from my parents. Mm -hmm. They just graduated from school and trying to get settled. And so that was where we sort of landed. And then um, generally stayed in Oakland for about another, you know, probably till I was about 12. My parents got divorced around that time um, and moved around a lot between my mom and my grandma as I was growing up. Um, my brother generally lived with my dad, but they were still within, you know, hour drive of each other, my mom and my dad. So I would see him, you know, Fairly, fairly often, I guess, you know, once every other week or so, I'd probably be at somebody's house. I don't have a lot of memories about it, um, probably because they weren't the best memories. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually when I think when I was about 15 and a half, I moved in with uh, some cousins of mine who owned a farm down in Central California. And uh, just because I was fascinated with uh, probably, you know, I look back on it now, it was with uh, work ethic of having to live on a farm and what that looked like. Mm. Cause I didn't really have that, I think. And the, so there was definitely some, something that drew me to that about being able to learn how to drive a tractor or welding, 
things like that, you know, so. Um, so what's that like for, for you? And I'm sure there's a ton of <laughs> directions you can go with that, but you know, my parents weren't divorced. So I'm, I'm always fascinated of what that was like for what you can remember, um, going through that at such, such a young age. And you were bouncing from different family members and going through puberty and trying to right. figure out your identity and you know, what, what, did, what did that do to you? Yeah, it, um, it definitely affected, you know, how I was viewing life. Um, you know, I've definitely, uh, started to make some very poor choices. Uh, my brother, he's two and a half years older than me. And, um, you know, we both sort of fell into similar areas. He, his story is completely different from mine in a lot of ways, but also at the same way, you know, uh, drugs became a part of our life. Um, you know, probably at a fairly early age, 13, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course at that point, you know, just making poor decisions and, um, you know, there weren't a lot of good memories from that point forward. Um, you know, some, as I reflect more back on what, what it was like and just some of the special moments with some people, you know, with like my grandparents, uh, with the cousins that I lived with on a farm, uh, things like that. But, um, yeah, were, were the drugs ever or anything else that you got in trouble for? Was it some of it a, a coping thing for you personally because of what was going on with your family? Or is it just like, hey, teenage wrong friends and try stuff? Yeah, probably teenage, you know, wrong friends, try stuff. Um, I mean, this was California in the 80s. I don't know, maybe it's the same in California in the, you know, what is it, the 10s now or something like something that? Like that yeah. yeah. Um, Almost you know, 20, yeah. But I mean, everybody was, you know, Smoking yeah. dope and, yeah. you know. Not much has changed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you go to you go live with your cousins on the farm and um, is that where you're graduating high school and becoming yep. a man? Yep. Or what, what was that transition when you go to college or what, what, what was your next step? So uh, sort of got it in my mind that I'd be able to go to college. Uh, I was able to turn my, my academic career thus far before I moved down there. Uh, was pretty poor. I think my freshman year of high school, I got a 0 0.5 GPA and, uh, not bad. Yeah. You know, I was, I was shooting for the stars. <laughs> uh, but I was able to turn that around my, uh, junior and senior year. And so I was able to apply to college. I thought that's what I wanted to do. It's what we were told we were supposed to do. And so right. I started, started going to school and it was, uh, you know, within about a 30 minute drive from where I was living on this farm. And I slowly realized I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to do this. Mm -hmm. There was no motivation to go to school. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, I'd sleep more in the library than anything else. And so an interesting thing started to happen is uh, there was always probably from when I was about 13 or 14, this draw about the military. Where do you think that came from? Uh, not really sure. I mean, I, I have some vague memories of seeing my dad was in the military for a few years. Um, G.I. Joe. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I'm not even sure if that was it either. Um, I remember when my brother went in as well. My brother okay. went in, um, you know, he went in when he was 17 and uh, had a very, you know, he, I think his enlistment was only for war two and a half years, something like that. But I remember when he came home from basic and I was fascinated with all the stuff that he brought with him, all this military stuff. And, you know, and again, there was just this idea that, oh, being a soldier, that's pretty cool. Hmm. Um, and... You know, I hadn't given much thought about it. I hadn't really talked to anybody about it. But, you know, while I was in school, my first semester, one of the my friends came back and he had just uh, enlisted in the Army and went to basic training. And I was asking him a little bit about it, you know, on a serious note of like, hey, is this something that, you know, 
that I could do? Is this, you know, is it a good deal? You know, and he basically talked, you know, he answered my questions obviously at that point to where I think it was uh, middle of December. I met with the recruiter and uh, ended up shipping out like a month and a half later, January, January 21st, 1988. Nice. All right. Well, I want to go right into that in a second, but I also want to backtrack before I forget. Sure. I sure. Forget sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, just with your, your parents is, do you have a relationship with your mom and dad now mm-hmm. or? Yeah, sure do. Um, you know, I, I talk to my parents not as often as I should. Uh, I just talked to my dad a couple of days ago and talked to my mom maybe uh, a week before that. Um, you know, I think we've got a pretty good relationship. I think now that I've gained some more wisdom, I recognize those relationships for how precious they really are. Mm. Um, you know, despite, you know, the choices they made, you know, when I was a small kid, I mean, you know, uh, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I've got a pretty good relationship. Unfortunately, they live in California and there's no way we could ever afford to live in California. So we don't see him as often as, um, as I know they would like, especially, you know, grandson and for them. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So let's hop in into the military life and you went in there and what were your expectations and what, <laughs> what kind of reality actually hit you with? Oh, I don't think I had expectations. I just remember, you know, I just remember, you know, uh, like basic training. I was scared, scared to death. I remember when uh, I met my drill sergeant the first time and I didn't think anybody could uh, use more swear words in a sentence than he did and still make sense, but he did. <laughs> you know exactly what he was telling yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. And boy, I was, I was super scared, but, um, you know, I initially came in, I signed up to be like a radio operator and uh, was able to get a duty assignment to uh, Germany at the time. I remember that's what I wanted to do because my brother was stationed there as well. And he came back with all these stories of traveling around Europe. You know, you're this 18 year old and just getting on trains, going everywhere, uh, drinking the best beer in the world. Living the life. Yeah. Man. Yeah. You know, and so I was able to do that. Actually, it was West Germany at the time when uh, I got stationed over there. So it was neat to be over there during that part and sort of see the world from that point of view, you know, when we were still looking at the Russian horde and, mm-hmm. you know, the the two mighty world powers. Coming yeah, what was that like for you getting a, a world experience? Uh, it was, uh, it definitely brought in, you know, just my worldview, you know, of, of people. And, you know, I, I think the second weekend I got stationed in Germany, uh, a lot of guys, uh, because it's a different culture, a lot of people would tend to sort of isolate themselves and, and stay on post, stay in the barracks. But, you know, I said, uh, there's no way I'm going to do that. So my second week in Germany, I, uh, you know, a little, little bit of German. I went ahead and bought a ticket and uh, went down to a little town. Uh, it was about a four-hour train ride down to Garmisch. I get down there at midnight on a Friday night. Don't know where I'm going to stay. But, you know, I'd, I'd try and find a little place and, you know, eventually just stay the weekend there. And that was sort of for the next about a year and a half that I was in Germany, a little bit over a year and a half that, you know, that's how I sort of lived my life over there. Just constantly trying to travel and uh, meet people, mm-hmm. new experiences. Were you expecting the military to be your, like your profession your whole life? And not at all. Really? Is not a short term kind of thing? Yeah. Short term. You know, I went in, I wasn't even sure what it was going to be like after that, but. But you were in for 20 some years? 22. 22, 22 years. That's a good chunk of time. Yeah. Yep. Longer than you thought you were going to be in? Oh, definitely. Definitely. So why, why do you think you stayed so long or what were you doing that kept you in for that long? Um, good leaders over me, mentors, you know, people that uh, saw something in me and said, hey, you know, I think that there's uh, 
a path that you could take that's a little bit more challenging and more, um, maybe I could say, deserving of, of your skill set. Um, you could do really good at something, you know. And I mean, that was the reason I transitioned from being a radio operator to going to flight school. Nice. And uh, you know, getting becoming a warrant officer. And it was just because my platoon leader he had you know an opportunity where he sat down with me. And for whatever reason, he saw on me and he's, you know, this 18 year old kid from California. And he said, you know, Matt, I, I think, you know, you ever, you ever thought about doing something like this? You know, that there's more out there than just what you're doing right now. And I had, I had no idea, mm -hmm. you know, that these opportunities were available. And so he helped push me in that direction and, uh, you know, helped me figure out how to do the application process and, you know, really instrumental and getting me to to that point of being able to go to flight school. It's amazing what someone who you respect can do when they encourage you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and make you believe in yourself in ways that you didn't even think possible. And especially that setting, like, if you didn't have somebody do that, who knows what would happen and exactly trajectory of your your life, really. Mm -hmm. And were you married in the military too? And when when did that happen? No, I didn't get married um, until uh, so this is. 89 was uh, when I was applied to flight school and got accepted. And so I uh, didn't end up meeting my wife until the end of flight school, which was uh, 1990. Okay. And then we ended up getting married in 94. Okay. And what year did you get out? 2010. 2010. Okay. Yeah. So not too long ago. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, give us an <laughs> idea. What are some of the hardest things about being in the military that maybe we wouldn't expect or that you, you went through personally, whether it's a physical or a mental kind of thing? Oh boy, that's a tough question. The hardest things about the military. I mean, there's, you know, it's funny, you know, soldiers, we always, you know, I was, we joke and we would say, you know, I mean, we can find, we can complain about anything. You know, Just like it, anybody. Yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, we sort of, we sort of even take pride in like, you know, complaining about it. You know, I mean, uh, if we had, uh, we used to joke that, uh, you know, over in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, especially when there was a big buildup, the mess halls would, would as, after things were established, they would start serving every Friday night, they would serve a steak and lobster. Mm. And nice. yeah, and you would think, you know, but but at the same time, you're like, oh, steak and lobster again? I'm gonna, I'm gonna complain about it, you know, and my <laughs> steak's overcooked and my lobster's too rubbery and, you know, but, I mean, I, you know, the hardest, the hardest part, um, I mean, I mean, I can't, you know, I mean, I mean, seriously, I, I can't think of, I mean, there was, you know, constantly, uh, having to, especially once I had a family, you know, having to say bye to the family again. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, that's, that's a difficult part and yeah. you know, that oh, happened, sure. you know, I mean, that's hard for anybody. Yeah. Um, and you were over there. I mean, we had desert storm. Were you were you part of any of these major like military initiatives? Or were you no. back home or other places during some of this stuff or nine eleven? You know, well, things like that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, I was actually home on leave when Panama happened in nineteen eighty nine. Uh, I was I was left Germany and I was getting ready to report to flight school, and so I was home when that happened uh, on leave. Uh, Desert Storm happened the following year, and I was still in flight school. Um, and then, uh, you know, probably one of the next bigger, you know, big things that happened is 9-11. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, right in the middle of it. We were stationed here in Savannah mm -hmm. when, when that went down. Where have you flown uh, in other countries? Uh, let's see. Um, 
And what kind of, is it different kind of helicopters or is it a specific one or? Uh, for the most part, it's always been the, uh, the CH-47, the Chinook helicopter. I flew that for about the first 11 years of my career. Okay. And what's unique about that one maybe compared to other ones? Then? Uh, um, it's the biggest. Okay. That's well, big... at least, you know, and there might, you know, somebody will probably come on here and say, well, technically this other one is, you know, but. Are you shipping, are you taking soldiers places? Are you shipping yeah, equipment or? It, it varied. Um, you know, for the first 11 years when I was flying the Chinook, you know, generally we would put, you know, infantry soldiers in the back or uh, when we were in Korea, we would do missions to where we would sling load these big, huge uh, 155 millimeter howitzers below us. And, uh, there wow. were, you know, th those were fun missions cause they would call them gun raids and we'd come in with a flight of four helicopters and, uh, with these big howitzers slung beneath us, beneath us. And we'd, we'd put them down and we'd land right next to them and the gun crews would jump off and, you know, and their goal was to try and, you know, get rounds down range as quick as possible after we set them down. Hmm. Uh, so I did that. And then, uh, it was 19, uh, let's see. 99 is when we came back here to Savannah and I uh, applied for and assessed, was accepted to the unit that's here, the special operations unit. Um, and so I still flew the Chinook, but it was the, the modified version. And so we see them flying around here in Savannah. They've got the, the probe that sticks out the front. Yeah. They're more of a matte black color. Um, When's the last time you flew a helicopter? Uh, 2009. Okay. Yeah. And you haven't been in one since or flown one since? No. Mm -mm. Not even been in one. Mm -mm. <clears throat> okay. Well, I'd, I'd love to know if you're willing to share just kind of an experience you had when you were in the army and, and flying and just kind of what happened. Um, was a dangerous, any dangerous combat things or something that, you know, other people were, were injured and mm -hmm. something you experienced that, you know, maybe you don't have to give all the details right. on or whatever right. you want to, but it was just, you know, kind of combat related or accident related that, that you've witnessed or been through. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny you ask that. And I think about all the, the different situations and, uh, the times when, uh, you know, things that would make the heart beat faster or after the fact you realize, you know, man, I can't believe we just did that or mm -hmm. got away with that or nothing happened. But, you know, and, it, and and I think it's important to also for me to say that, you know, my story is going to be very similar to a lot of other uh, soldiers and sailors and airmen stories, you know, mm -hmm. and that, you know, I don't have the market on being in combat. I don't have the market on getting shot at, having friends killed, you know, and uh, which I think is, you know, really cool <laughs> about this podcast, yeah. though, because, you know, get people to go out there and maybe, you know, hear some stories from others who have experienced these things. Um, in an appropriate way, of course. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I don't claim that, you know, I was, I was not GI Joe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I loved what I did mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, love the people that we supported our customers, uh, is how we, we would refer to them, you know, after nine 11 and mm -hmm. good. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, there was constantly times over there and I think for the first couple of years after nine 11, when we were in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, the small group of guys that I worked with here in Savannah and we started training together in 99 when I got here and, um, and there'd been people before me who have, you know, been training as well. But, um, you know, we were maybe not naive, but, you know, we were riding a wave of very successful missions. You know, mm -hmm. we were, we were going out there almost every single night in Afghanistan and, and taking these aircraft and we would, we would have a group of maybe 12, 15 special forces soldiers or Navy SEALs. And 
Sometimes they were, a lot of them times in 2002, they were from other countries. So Canada, um, the Danes, Germany, you know, there are special operation forces who were over there as well. And we'd, we'd find like this little tiny uh, rock at 12,000 feet and put them in and at night. Hmm. And just by virtue of doing that of itself, I and mean, we'd come back with holes in the aircraft from boulders and sometimes missing landing gear, um, you know, not from getting shot at, but just because the terrain was so yeah. dangerous over there. And it was so, you know, um, it was dark, it was dusty, um, you know, and it really pushed us in the aircraft, uh, the, the whole crew, you know, to the limits. Um, you know, so we sort of rode that way. We, we did Afghanistan. We came back, I think it was middle of October of 2002. We had about a two month period to where we started planning for Iraq. And then in January of 2003, uh, we said bye to our families again and, you know, went to Jordan to get ready to for the Iraq invasion, um, you know, and went through that within our company, uh, fairly unscathed. Um, we had some people in our sister battalions, you know, that had been killed, been shot, um, you know, some, some aircraft getting shot down and, um, you know, but it, there, there's a distance that you can get from you know, I guess, uh, stages of separation, you know, yeah. and so it doesn't affect you as emotionally. I mean, there's some effect, mm -hmm. you know, you might've met a guy at a, a training event yeah. or went to school with him. Was there anything that, uh, either now or afterwards gave you any kind of PTSD or, or just mental health, sure. you know, yeah. trauma or just anything you had to work through after any of these experiences or while yeah. you were in there? Um, yes. The answer to that is yes. Uh, and, you know, what's funny about, you know, with the military and especially, and I think, uh, you know, not just our unit, um, but I think a lot of people experience this is, you know, in war, you don't get a chance to say, hey, time out, I need a break. Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously there's a job that has to be done. And that's what we signed up for. And so, you know, we would laugh and we would, you know, sometimes joke and say, we get done with a really hard mission. And the only thing that we would ever get is another mission the next night. And so there's no time to process, Yeah, you know, you're constantly just preparing for the next mission, going to the next thing. So there's never a time to process and that's not anybody's fault. It's just the way it is. And, you know, and so we would go into the cycle of flying, you know, night after night after night, maybe get a night off here or there. Maybe there'd be some bad weather, or, um, you know, somebody else is going to fly instead of you, mm -hmm. but you're experiencing these things of, you know, flying in this dangerous terrain, you know, and you're getting shot at, you know, there's, you see tracer fire coming by the, by the aircraft, you know, which we would describe these big orange fiery basketballs hmm. flying up towards the aircraft. And that's not really a fun thing to do, even if it might only, might just be a quarter mile away or a half mile away, but you know, they're out there yeah, and they're looking for you, right? you know, or we'd see RPGs flying between aircraft, things like that. And that begins to build and you just don't realize it, you know, because I mean, we were young, we were... <laughs> I'd laugh and I say, you know, we were 30, you know, I was 30, what, 32, 33, I think, you know, when the war first started. Yeah. And I mean. Wow. So you said you didn't, at the time you didn't realize it. Right. When did you realize it? Probably not till about 2007 or so. Um, it, you know, maybe a little bit in 2005. And that's a couple of years before you got out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 2005, we probably, in our company and in our regiment, uh, we suffered, you know, another tragic loss. And, and again, there've been tragic losses in our, in our unit, um, since 9-11, uh, before then, and even before 9-11, but 
Um, you know, that was when it really hit close to home uh, when we had an aircraft get shot down uh, June 28, 2005, and it was on a, a rescue mission. And uh, you had eight crew members that were on board and eight Navy SEALs, mm -hmm. and everybody was killed. Mm -hmm. um, then ultimately, three of the people they were going to rescue were also killed. Um, and, you know, the pilots, um, they were guys that I had known. One of the pilots, Chris, I'd known him since flight school. So I'd known him for uh, 16 years almost, mm. 15 years. Is that right? 90, something like that. Um, Corey, the other pilot, um, I knew him since I joined the unit in 99. So I knew him for six years. And, you know, and we'd been, you know, you know, they talk about there's this band of brothers that develops in combat. I mean, that's what that miniseries mm -hmm. is about. And it definitely happens. You know, you're closer to them in a lot of ways in your family. Yeah. And just to have, and you think, again, we're invincible. I mean, we know there's a risk, but now they're, you know, we get word that, hey, you know, aircraft's been shot down. You don't know if there's any survivors. And, you know, everybody's going through these different emotions, you know, and the Navy SEALs, same thing. They don't know if there's survivors yet. They don't know what's going on. And it wasn't until they finally got, you know, rescue forces on the ground to go after the rescue forces that they, you know, realized, that, hey, the aircraft, you know, after it got shot down, I mean, nobody survived from the air, from the aircraft, um, you know? And so I think, you know, going through that experience, I mean, it's definitely affected me. It affected, I mean, I know it affected my other brothers that were over there with me and, mm -hmm. and, you know, probably, it probably rippled out 5,000, 10,000 people. Ultimately, you think about all the lives that were changed at that moment, but, um, but there was still a job to do at that point. Um, but you began to, maybe question not yeah yeah there's probably some questioning of why mm -hmm. why did this happen and your own mortality comes more into focus and you start thinking about your family um you know when you end up you know landing your helicopter and they're loading your best friends in body bags in the back of the aircraft and you know when you um that smell you you can't not forget that smell of of what it you know burned burned bodies and um, you know, and so, you know, as, as a, as a group of guys, we grew together closer without a doubt. Um, uh, but I think we also all started to deal with things in a certain way. Um, and then from that point, I think it was just began to build because there wasn't time to process. I mean, there was some, you know, they, I think ultimately they find, you know, we had a memorial service. We had this plain side ceremony where we bring, uh, the caskets and we put them on the aircraft mm -hmm. to come back to the United States and, you know, which is supposed to provide, you know, it does provide some closure, mm -hmm. but still, you know, it's not like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go spend a day and go talk to a shrink or, um, you know, and we had them over there in right. our unit, but at the same time, I'm not going to go do that. Right. You know, I'm, I'm fine. So and when did you realize you weren't fine? Was it in while you're in the military, not till you got out? Like what's, what's going on with you? What's affecting you? When do you have to get help? Yeah, uh, probably towards, uh, you know, when I was, we were considering starting to get out and I just began to notice some things and, and some of it had to do with my desire to, uh, continue to do the mission. Um, I mean, I would do it without a doubt, but there was definitely a different mentality and, and I would really have to, uh, do a gut check to be able to go out there and do it. Mm. Um, you know, and then also just fear of losing the family. Um, I was experienced, uh, a few months after that act, that, uh, aircraft that got shot down, I was in an accident as well in Afghanistan. 
the aircraft lost an engine and we ended up uh, crashing on top of a mountain. And, and I mean, that was a very traumatic event as well. Mm. Um, but geez, you man. know, and I just remember, you know, one of the things that I saw as our aircraft was rolling over and, uh, catching on fire and whatnot, is I remember seeing my son, Nick, who was probably let's say 2005. So he was, uh, you know, eight at the time, I think. And I just remember this, you know, with his arms out, you know, and just thinking, I'm never going to see him again. Mm. And you know, what do you do with that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I, I still don't know what to do with it. You know, uh, and I, I know what, you know, some of the mental health people say I should do with, with some of these things and, and thoughts. Um, but I, sometimes I question, you know, if what they're saying is correct, mm -hmm. you know? So it was, it was while I was in the military, but there was still back then, there was still definitely, uh, a large stigma with mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, I think it sounds like the military has gotten a lot better. I still think some of it's probably, um, lip service, you know, uh, but from guys that I've talked to who've recently gotten out or, and, and a couple that are still in, you know, it's gotten a little better. But when I was, you know, when I was in, it was, you know, if you got referred to behavioral health, um, I mean, that can prevent growth and yeah, opportunity. Right. Yeah. You know, um, and so it actually wasn't until I had gotten out, I had submitted some, some stuff with the VA uh, Veterans Administration and uh, for a couple other uh, injuries, back, neck, you know, for, for uh, um, disability. And they also referred me to see a, a civilian psychologist. And, and I can't remember what the reason why, but it wasn't for PTSD. Uh, and I sat down with him and he's just like, well, just tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. And that was really the first time somebody ever asked me that. Hmm. And I just started, you know, it was like word vomit started coming out. And, you know, not just feelings, but I mean, there was physical responses to where, you know, I was getting nervous. I was, my heart was racing. I was crying. And, and he looked at me, he goes, have you ever tell you that, that you might have PTSD? And I go, no. And, you know, ultimately, you know, that's what, you know, we talked and a uh, super great guy, um, a civilian that right here in Savannah and, uh, and he just, you know, and he put came over and put his hand on my shoulder and just, you know, even though at that point he even told me, he says, you know, this isn't supposed to be a counseling session. I'm just supposed to diagnose you, but you know, man, I feel for you. Mm. And, um, and that sort of began this journey of, of, you know, trying to understand what's going on in my head and how to, uh, deal with it, how to live with it, how to be, how to thrive instead of just survive. Yeah. And that's what I think is so interesting about you is that we talked about this before we, we went on air here is that, you know, somebody comes up and talks to you. It's like, oh man, can tell this guy's got his act together and he's super just <laughs> diligent and well-spoken and, you know, talk to anybody and he's got a smile on his face and can help anybody at any time. And, you know, look at him, like you said, but you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes and what you've went through. And, and which is a lot of what, you know, Quinn, we talked about last week too, is just, you just don't know what people have gone through, especially with the stigma of mental health too. It's, it's not an easy thing to just bring up in conversation, yeah. you know, when you've got five minutes to talk about it and, you know, you're someone that's around people and we'll get to kind of what you're doing now, you know, you, you help people mm -hmm. now that you're out of the military, you've been one overseas to help people, which we'll talk about in a minute and you're here helping people. And, but you're someone that's had to admit that you need help. Yeah. And what, what has that been like for you? Even now, even if that was a, a decade ago or however long, what are you still dealing with that, 
you know, if I don't keep track of it and I'm honest with myself, like it can still affect me and my marriage or my life. And, you know, what's that like? Or what do you go through? Can right. Help us paint the picture of sure. what that's like for you. Sure. I mean, there's still, uh, you know, anything can, can trigger, you know, these memories and these events and it becomes very real, you know, and so things on the news um, about things that are happening in the Middle East, um, you know, even hearing helicopters or the artillery fire from Fort Stewart. Mm. Um, and these are common probably to a lot of, a lot of people that have been, you know, combat veterans, um, certain smells, and it just begins to trigger, uh, for me, you know, anxiety, fear, a desire, and which creates a desire to isolate myself. Mm. You know, um, I know you're familiar with the Enneagram, correct? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a five, so I like to plan stuff and very methodical. And, and when I'm healthy, I should go towards this eight, this strong leader who's going to step out. And without a doubt, when I was in the military, that's what I did under stress, bring more. Right. I mean, that, that's just, I loved it. I would thrive on that. But my unhealthy tendency is to isolate. And, you know, I will do that. I mean, that's the easiest thing for me to do is, um, you know, when, when things get stressed, when I start to feel that the world is closing in, when I start thinking these dark thoughts, you know, of my worth, of, of who I am, what's my identity, what, what should I be doing? Um, you know, um, you know, I'm just, I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to sit at home and not in a healthy way. You know, I'll either just binge on Netflix, um, you know, find a computer game to go to for 12 hours straight. Um, you know, not talk to my wife you know, and it, it just creates this mental, uh, I guess, you know, this, this fog yeah. to where, you know, I just don't want to deal with the world. Can she tell when you're in that, that phase or does she, do you have to she does. help her a little bit with it or is it hard to share? I mean, at first it was without yeah. a doubt. And, uh, you know, and especially, you know, for, for people that are listening who, who are suffering with similar things right now, you know, I mean, and there's a couple of things I, you know, I definitely want to say, and this is one of them to, to those. Um, and I'm going to relate this in a story. And we had just come back, um, fast forwarding a little bit when I got out and we were overseas living on Cyprus and, um, which was an incredible experience and, but also caused some things to kick loose in my head, um, as far as, you know, PTSD. And when we came back, we were seeing a counselor, uh, Gina Rose and, there was some event that happened to where, uh, you know, basically I didn't say the, I didn't say the appropriate things to my wife and, uh, and I was in a, I was very much in a controlling nature because I wanted things within my sphere of control mm -hmm. because if it's outside of my control, bad things are going to happen. People are going to get killed. And that's what I would believe. That's what my mind would think because that in reality, when I was in the military, that's how it was. Right. And we had contingencies for everything absolutely everything. And if we didn't, we were trained well enough that we could still get the mission done. But now in this civilian life, you know, my wife wants to go and drive 20, 30 minutes to hear some worship music at, at church that night. And I'm like, well, it's dark, it's dangerous. I don't want you to be away from me, you know, and, and, and really force my hand on that. And, you know, that wasn't a good thing. I mean, I, I that was specifically what it was when we got in this big argument mm -hmm. and I'll never forget because the next week we're sitting with Gina, a counselor, and she talked to me before and we talked a few times and done some mini counseling sessions. And, and as I'm relating the story, you know, she tells me, 
you know, Matt, you know, the, these things you feel, these emotions, um, they're hundred percent valid, you know, and which, which was good for me to hear in some ways, you know, mm -hmm. and, and at that point too, I was sort of like, oh, see, that's right. <laughs> and then she goes, but I was like, and her tone changed completely. And I was like, what? And she goes, but that doesn't give you the right to project that on your wife and son. And that just smacked me upside the head. Mm. And there's, a, there's so much truth in that. And that's not saying that I need to keep them from it. Right, right. You know, um, and if anything, I need to be more open with them. But, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have this right just to lash out to, to project this hurt and this feelings upon them. You know, I think I've got a right to share, hey, honey, today's a real rough day. You know, things are just tough right now. Um, I'm feeling closed in. This is stressing me out. You know, I'm, I think I'm just going to hang out at the house this afternoon. Um, you know, which would be a more appropriate answer mm -hmm. than lashing out or, you know, going through and deciding that, you know, we're going to, I'm going to OCD the, the, the kitchen or the living room and start screaming when I can't find something. Wow. Yeah. What's that like for your son too? Your father, I've got four young boys mm -hmm. and you know, who we are, what we model for them, not necessarily what we say to them is what they pick up and from from their father a lot it's like the, the actions speak a lot louder than words you know yeah and yeah. i'm just interested what that dynamic was like with your son maybe what you knew was happening or look back and realize what was actually happening or how your relation developed through all of the things you were going through uh yeah that's probably the you know if i i look back even now you know did i mess it up did i you know is he going to you know, even though I know where he's at now and, and, uh, you know, he's doing really well, mm -hmm. he's turning into this awesome young man, um, you know, adulting, you know, he's making some great choices and I see that where it's at now, but I still, you know, wonder, all right, you know, for some of these things that happened and sometimes when he saw me in a not a healthy way and he knows it too now to where he'll sort of joke and, you know, like, dad, are you getting stressed out right now? Or are you, um, you know, because he knows this mode that I'll go to where I want to isolate myself or if mm -hmm. I start to get snappy or angry. Um, and and I've had talks with him, you know, told him, you know, hey, this is the reason why this is. And he knows the different things that I've gone through. I mean, um, you know, if he asks, I'll share. But, you know, he remembers these guys that were killed. Mm. You know, he was, you know, not that old yet, but he do he definitely remembers who they were. And, um you know, and understands the memory and how important it is to, to still remember them. Yeah. But I, I think ultimately, you know, um, you know, I mean, I owe a lot of that to my wife, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that, that he's able to, you know, still live, I guess I'm going to say normal childhood growing up while I was constantly deploying and, yeah. you know, cause she tried to keep things as normal as possible while I was gone. Gotcha. Well, I want to make sure we get a couple of these other <laughs> topics before sure. we end, but you know, you mentioned Cyprus and mm -hmm. you decided you and your wife and your son too, right? Yep. You all went and lived in Cyprus, which is a island in the Mediterranean Sea. And yeah. it's, uh, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm going to try to impress you and see what I know about okay. it. But it's, it has Greek culture. Yep. But it's not owned by Greece. It's technically Turkish or Turkey runs it or close. Okay. So close. almost there, but um, it's surrounded by Greece's over here and you got uh, Syria and yeah. you know, Jerusalem and man, it's right in the middle of a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
so now, and I, I can't remember the exact year, but it's its own, the Republic of Cyprus is an EU nation. Okay. And, uh, but since I think it was 1974, Turkey had invaded to protect some of their interests. Um, and, you know, obviously politics played a huge role in that. Race played a huge role um, in what was going on on the island um, and still does today, mm -hmm. as in much parts of that world right now. Um, so what are you doing there, man? Why are you taking your family there after getting out of the military? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a crazy story too. So, um, you know, my worldview got changed. And, you know, I didn't grow up in the church at all. And, uh, but, you know, uh, again, I had somebody who decided that it was worth it to, to invite us to, you know, come and join them for a service. And, um, and that began this journey that, um, you know, that I started to have of who God is, um, what that means to me, you know, and ultimately of who Jesus is. And, um, through that process, as I began to learn, learn more and more about who Jesus is and what is, what he teaches, what he asks of us to do and why, you know, it really came upon both my heart and my wife's heart that we wanted to go overseas and share that, you know, not force anybody to convert or, you know, but we felt that, you know, the teachings of Jesus that's laid out, you know, that we see in the gospels that, um, you know, of, you know, love God first, love your neighbor second mm -hmm. is there's so many people around the world. And so we learned that there was this group of people, um, on the island of Cyprus that had never heard that before. And, uh, they also turned out to be 99% Muslim, um, which was uh, sort of a, a flip or, a, a you know, a big 180 degree turn from what I used to in the military and because, you know, you're not going to, at least I don't think we hear on the news and you're not going to hear politicians saying it's this war, you know, the West against Islam, but their motivations and their ideology, you know, fighting the Taliban and Al Qaeda and ISIS and all these people, it, it comes from, you know, their view of the world as well and Islam, you know, so instead of going over to their fight them, you know, I wanted to go over there and really just love them. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, and that was just, that was a whole God heart flip just incredible uh, that only he could do. How long were you over there for? We were uh, just a little bit over two years. Okay. What was, the, what was the thing you learned the most, you think, either about yourself or God or just people that are different than you? What? Um, well, the people, I mean, I mean, great culture, great people. I mean, they were, they were always friendly. Um, you know, most of them had Turkish backgrounds or Turkish heritage. Uh, and because of that, you know, in Turkey at that point, you know, and, or, even, you know, I don't know how it works out now, but you know, they're an ally, they're part of NATO. And so with some of the people, some of the guys, uh, there was a common bond actually that I sort of felt and was able to share with them about being in combat hmm. because I mean, Turkey's been either fighting, you know, they've got their problems over in the East with the, with the Kurds, um, you know, and then also on the island of Cyprus. I mean, since 19, in 1974, there was a big fight that occurred. And so a lot of the, the uh, Turkish Cypriots had been involved in that war, mm -hmm. you know. And so even though they're, you know, had this worldview of Muslim, you know, from the Muslim world, you know, and mine was now coming from this worldview of Christian, there still was a common bond. But, um, you know, and so there was never any animosity. There was never any fear. We never felt, you know, 
uh, in danger for our lives, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are just some really great people. And, you know, while we were only there a short period of time and learning the language, you know, um, I received a lot of questions, you know, why, why would you come over here? Mm-hmm. You know, why would you be here? And, you know, um, and I was able to sort of share my testimony too of how God sort of changed my heart for this huge population of the world. Because I would, you know, before then I would just lump everybody, you know, into the same category. Every Muslim would be in this terrorist, mm. everyone. But God really sort of flipped my heart. Wow, that's really cool. And that's, I'm sure that was a really long two years, but that's a really short time in someone's life to to be over to be over there compared to how long you've lived. And was it therapeutic in any way too? Like you, like God was healing you mm. for a short period of time before you came back over here. No, I actually, I think it was almost more the opposite. It allowed some other things to open up. Wow. Because I was pulled out of my comfort zone. I was pulled Mm. out of the things that I could go to to cope. Mm. People, because, and and this is, and I use this now, you know, when when I help and teach and lead people now, you know, when you're here in the States, if you don't want to hang out with your neighbor, if you don't want to maybe go out with a group of friends that night or go to church or whatever, it doesn't matter. You can just, no, I'm not going to be there tonight. I'm sick, blah, blah, blah. And and you can go and binge watch Netflix, um, you know, take a nap, an Ambien, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it's so easy for us to do that here in in our culture here in the West. When I was overseas and there was just a few families, uh, American families that were there and we were all on the team together and, you know, that had I make that same choice, and there was definitely times where I just wanted to just check out, but I couldn't because, you know, um, my team leader, John Mark, he was not only my team leader, he was also my friend, the guy I'd want to just go hang out with, you know, maybe have a game night or a guy movie night or go camping. You know, he was my boss, my coworker, um, spiritual advisor, and also just somebody just that I can vent to. Mm-hmm. And if I was to shut him out, you know, which, the, you know, and not because of him, but just, again, that desire mm-hmm. to, things are tough. I just want to isolate myself. Um, you know, that that's going to lead to destruction, regardless of whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, don't believe anything. Right. You know, that's not healthy for anybody. Um, and so what I found over there is, as because you're in a high stress situation, it's cross-cultural, you don't speak the language, which is fun for like a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you start to learn that, oh, wow, you know, they don't even have grape jelly in this country. There's got to be something wrong. <laughs> and, 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 we, and you know, and, and so there's this time period that really makes you upset or the concept of personal space or mm-hmm. waiting in line, these things that we come to expect as normal in the West. And we know we're going to experience this going in, but it just began to trigger these other stresses and emotions. And so, um, which, I mean, it is what it is. I look back on it now and you know, maybe it wasn't uh, necessarily the best choice that we made at the time, but we didn't know everything either mm-hmm. as far as uh, what God had planned for us and how that was going to manifest itself in the field. And so, um, you know, that was one of the reasons that we ended up uh, coming back to the United States is just, uh, you know, partly partly because of my mental health. Mm. Wow. Interesting. But man, it sounds like you learned so much while you were over there. And Oh, yeah. A couple of things that are interesting. One is no, your, your boss that was over there, his wife actually went on the Rwanda trip with, That's right. yeah. with yeah. your wife and myself mm-hmm. and some other leaders. 
this past summer too. So that's just a really interesting connection. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, I definitely don't think that time was wasted. You probably don't either. No. But how it set you up for what you're doing now, really. Yeah. And helping other people kind of go into doing what you were doing, trying to do there mm-hmm. in Cyprus. And so let's kind of cover that for one of our last things of where you're at now in life. And you already mentioned your son's in college. Yeah. And yeah. It's just you and your wife now. And you are working where and doing what? Uh, well, technically, I don't work anywhere right now. Right. Um I understand. Know, right. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's no official paycheck coming in other than other than from the government, which uh-huh. is fine. Um, You're you working, know. though. But, um, you know, our my heart and my desire is to mentor, to lead, to coach, to disciple other people uh, to be leaders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, specifically, you know, from the worldview of being a Christian. Um, and that could be going into missionary service or it could just be the person who owns a small business here in town but trying to come alongside of them and sharing our story a little bit, but then also holding people accountable. Mm. And because that's something that our culture, yeah, that's so good. You know, we lack so much and it's so easy, you know, and that's, uh, we talk about, you know, I talked about your community and what that looks like. And in the States, you can just check out like, nah, I just don't, you know, I'm just going to say I'm sick or my hamster died or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people just, you know, and, uh, the small group that my wife and I lead, which started through a series of events, but, you know, I brought some of that accountability of what we learned. And, you know, we tell people, you got to come. And people are like, what, it's mandatory? Well, I mean, obviously it's not mandatory, but if you want to commit to be part of this group, that means when you have a bad day at work and you don't feel like coming, right? you're still going to come. right? And you don't have to say anything, but I know how unhealthy it is to go home and isolate yourself if your head is messed up. Because... Hmm. You know, you're going to start thinking bad thoughts. You're going to start thinking you're, you know, you're a failure. You're not worth it. And so trying to teach people things like that, which is going to change their outlook on life and allow them to operate better, um, to be better leaders, um, you know, and in the Christian context of how to love people better, of how to, um, you know, listen. Yeah. Actually go out and love yeah love is a verb instead of just saying all the time we love everybody right here do it in your real life in the real world yeah and yeah that's i mean that's part of the reason we're doing this is just having opportunities to do that it's like stop talking about it or Mm -hmm. saying you're this when there's no accountability to it right and i I think that's great and what's the the name of kind of your teaching or the course or some of the stuff that you use to do that um we also, yeah, so we also do a, uh, we started teaching a world, uh, sort of, it's a world missions course. And people will say, uh, especially within the Christian church, they'll say, oh, missions, that's not for me. And that's for the people who like to go eat bugs and go to foreign countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but really it's just a course on, you know, what God's plan is. And it's called the Kairos course. Uh, we brought it down here about 2014, I think. And mm-hmm. so we started teaching that. And the, and the neat thing about that, we just finished one last night. And the really cool thing is um, it's not just, you know, within our church. You know, this is something that we have been uh, started working with other churches. And so we've got, I think, representation now from probably five or six churches in the area. And to where we're getting the, the church leaders are excited about it, too, because, um, you know, it crosses the economical lines, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and really gets to the heart of who Jesus is and what his desire is for us. And so, um, so we do that and, 
then we just get a chance to, you know, if people come out of that and they're like, hey, I think I want to go do this. I want to, there's something bigger out there. I know it. And so we'll come alongside of them and start walking with them and um, trying to help point them in the right direction. Yeah. And I appreciate what you're doing too, man, as a former pastor of, hey, it's not a, you're not just going out there like trying to convert people or go to these places and not understand them. Like right. you are, understand people that are around you or people that you want to go love, especially mm -hmm. people that are different than you. Go understand them, be in their lives and learn how to love them where they're at. Yeah. Unconditionally. Yep. Without, you know, trying to get something from them or make them believe what you believe or make them do whatever mm -hmm. and, and learn how to love people that are different than you are all around you. And you learned a lot of that the hard way yeah. too and had your world rocked. And I think it's really cool that you're teaching other people how to do that. And I can tell that you really enjoy it and it's it's meaningful. You don't call work, but I call <laughs> I call work. You're I don't care how you're getting paid. Like it's right. Like that's that's good work, man. I, I appreciate it. And just kind of to to wind it down here a little bit. We always do at the end of the podcast, want to know how somebody just can enter into someone's story or the life of some of the things you've went through just mm. on a, on a personal way, whether it's, you know, you can hit a couple different fronts. It could be somebody that's PTSD or been in the military experience, combat or trauma, or just mental health or just struggles with worldviews on things. And they're not there yet. What, what could somebody do to, to just simple ways to make an impact in someone's life with things that you went through or just mm -hmm. some of the things you see out there? Uh, the mental health one, boy, that's a, that's a hot wire to go towards, um, especially for, for veterans. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, because there is a lot of, it gets a lot of press and, uh, which, you know, I'm thankful for, mm -hmm. but sometimes at the same time, you sort of wonder, um, what's the motivation behind these programs and the money that's going towards it. Uh, you know, but I think, you know, if I was to say to somebody, you know, if you know a veteran and. And, uh, you know, how you could come alongside of them. And, uh, you know, I think probably one of the things that most of us do not enjoy hearing, and, and there's probably a pride issue with this too, and I realize that, is uh, when, you know, you start to share your story or, yeah, hey, it's just a rough day. Or, and people will say, well, um, and it's a natural response that, well, man, I just can't understand what you're going through, but. Mm -hmm. And. You know, and we don't want people to necessarily have that empathy of, you know, because, you know, um, you know, whether, whether you're a combat vet or maybe you're a sexual abuse victim or a car accident or you've been in a house fire, um, you know, I mean, there's all these different ways that post-traumatic stress can, can mm -hmm. manifest itself or different things that can cause it to happen, you know? And so, of course, I can't empathize with somebody, a rape victim. Mm -hmm. You know, but I can just come alongside of him and put a hand on the shoulder, tell him I love him and I'll listen to whatever you have to say. And, you know, but sometimes it, it's, you know, when you hear that word of like, uh, you know, people are always, you know, because when you say, well, you know, I've never been through anything like that, you're elevating him. Mm -hmm. You're putting him on a pedestal in a way and they don't want to be on a pedestal. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, I don't want to be in the spotlight, but if somebody says, Hey man, I'm just here. And you know, if you just ever want to talk and. You know, no judgment and I'll listen and I love you. And I think that's really a useful thing for, um, for people and, uh, you know, for people who struggle with maybe, a um, their worldview is, might be very, uh, 
laser focused on a certain culture or, uh, you know, you've, you've got to take that step. You've got to find somebody who's different, you know, and it's going to be your neighbor. Uh, might be somebody who works at a, at a store you go to, um, you know, just taking an opportunity to, to make a new friend. Um, it's coworker, you know, um, you know, the, here in the city of Savannah, we're, we're, you know, I call it blessed. The fact that we're, you know, we're becoming, we're becoming more multicultural, whether it's, uh, refugees coming from overseas or places like Gulfstream who are bringing a lot of, uh, foreign workers mm -hmm. here. And so, you know, we can start to see that within our community, what that looks like. So the opportunity is there. It's just the choice. Am I going to go out there and take a risk? And it's going to be hard. It's yeah. going to feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, I know what that's like. I mean, when we went overseas and I had to learn, start learning Turkish, I would have to walk into a store and butcher the language and they would laugh, you know, but I kept on doing it day after day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, was able to make tell you were trying. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I think, you know, it's, it's not coming in with, Hey, I'm going to come in here and fix things. I'm going to come in here and, uh, show you what I know, but you know, just coming to hang out. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because I talk about that a lot with, with just different guys in my life. And like, we get a false sense of diversity and that we're around people that are different. So that therefore means like we're really understand, understanding mm -hmm. and care for them and trying to get to know them. Like in the soccer field, there's a dad over there that's African-American. There's a dad over there that's Mexican. There's a dad over there that's from Asia. And so it's like, oh man, I feel really good that, you know, I've, I'm in this area weekly with, with people that are different and we're, we're cordial. But does anybody go talk to each other about, you know, what makes us different? It's like, hey man, now that we're friends and stuff, it's like sit down, ask questions about this and culture and mm -hmm. things like that. And it's, it's crazy how amazing those conversations are because a lot of times we don't don't go there. Yeah. And just getting to know, it's like, oh my goodness, you're you experienced this and you experienced that. And it's just it's not like you said, it's not a hard thing to do in theory, <laughs> but in action it can be. Because it once you get taken out of your comfort zone, like you, you know, it's a drastic version, but once you got taken to Cyprus and had your mind kind of blown on your perception of Muslims or different cultures. Like, whoa, I had a lot of things wrong yeah. and wow, man, now, now I have to change. And that's really the hard part is like, if I really find out what's going on over here now, I might have to change my thoughts, my actions, my words. And do I really want to do that or not? Right. You know, am I going to walk the walk or just talk right. the talk? Well, I appreciate you being a guy that walks the walk. You talk the talk, but you, you walk the walk too. Appreciate your service to our country. Appreciate you sharing today things that aren't necessarily easy to talk about and put out there for anybody to watch and listen to. And I think it's going to be really helpful, kind of like Quinn's was last week. And mm -hmm. really appreciate you sharing things that are that are difficult. And I think they're going to help other people and hopefully start conversations. And whether it's someone talking to someone that's been in the military or PTSD, mental health, or just someone that's different religion, culture, appreciate you taking that step to do that and you're my friend I'm thanks glad Nick. you're here yeah yeah glad to be here <laughs> appreciate it man and quinn thank you for always just producing thank you city church for hosting and this has been the neglected is there could i throw in one more thing yeah and then i was going to because i almost forgot go ahead okay um no i just want you know I, I you know i imagine that i might have a few friends that that'll see this pop up and they might watch it you know combat vets and, and guys that i worked with you know and i just you know to those guys um, 
you know, I just cannot, um, you know, so thankful for those relationships that I have. And I just encourage that for any of them, or if they know somebody who's struggling, hmm. man, get help, get help. It, it's, it's, you know, the alternative. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, that's all over the news today too, you know, vets committing suicide and right. our marriages being destroyed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who, who have gone through divorces, you know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe that can't be prevented or, but, you know, but, but seek help, you know, and, and I don't have all the answers. I mean, I'm still out there trying to figure figure it all out and right. I probably never will, but guys, you know, um, go out and, 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 you know, whether it's talk to a buddy or a professional, yeah. but get it out there. And that was the last thing I was going to say was, is there any way that somebody's listening to this, they can contact you either like a social media or an email thing just to reach out to you if they have questions about things or something like sure. that, where it's like, Hey man, I don't know what I'm doing, but can you help me listen to me, point me in the right direction? Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, you can just email me. It's uh, my email is super simple. It's uh, matt.rogi at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, if anybody was to email me and say, hey, you know, I, I'd, be, I'd be glad to help put somebody in the right direction or at least try and figure out what that direction might look like. Sure. Well, again, appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Quinn, thank you. And uh, this has been The Neglected, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, man.